to the Orion Open Science Podcast. I'm Emma Harris. I'm Louisa Bengtsson. And we're broadcasting to you from Berlin, Germany. Today we're talking about open data and sharing research data, and we'll be talking to Dr. Daniel Barron. Yeah, so the thing about sharing data is very often when we talk about it with fellow uh, researchers or yeah, anybody basically like, yeah, but what do you mean sharing data? Like all data, always? And I mean, you always have this uh, this nice phrase uh, that you sort of uh, oh, copy yes. cat from the EU. <laughs> I do, yes. Um, uh, like I can't remember. <laughs> um, uh, open uh, where possible, closed as necessary. Exactly. But then, uh, you know, I mean, I, I, I've been talking to a friend of mine who is a social sciences researcher, actually, recently, and I was telling her, like, what I'm doing. We haven't seen each other for a while. And um, and she was like, oh, but sharing data. Oh, because she's, she's a researcher in Sweden. And she's like, oh, our librarians want us to share data all the time, all the data. And like, you don't understand. I cannot share my data. It's... It's personal data. I cannot yeah. share it. And uh, she was asking, like, what do you think? And, uh, well, I could only say, well, as open as possible, as close mm-hmm. as necessary. But actually, there are ways to share data without actually, you know, giving access to this data to everybody anytime. And um, I think that was really nicely, um, this whole conundrum of sharing, but being open, well, not sharing, and sharing being open and closed was quite quite nicely uh, illustrated by the, the affair. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, um, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Daniel Barron is, is going to um, hopefully go into this more. Um, but the reason we're interviewing him was he wrote an article about uh, this Twitter storm that was created when uh, Jack Gallant basically refused to share his data sets on the basis that his researchers, his lab, were still working on them. Mm. And there's this, you know, when you have to share, is there a kind of a sell-by date and who decides that? And those are the topics we're going to be talking about. Yeah, thanks for inviting me on here. My name's Daniel Barron. I'm a psychiatry resident at Yale University's neuroscience training program. And so uh, my job right now is to learn how to try to treat patients with mental illnesses. And also, uh, I'm involved in a couple of lines of research. Um, I'm uh, My background is in brain imaging, so different types of MRI analyses. And I'm working on a longitudinal study of patients with bipolar disorder right now. So I'm trying to combine these very cool like digital phenotyping approaches with uh, predictive analyses using functional uh, MRI. And I'm working with uh, Todd Constable and John Crystal in my department. And so my interest in open science um, really started when I was a graduate student and I wanted to study epilepsy. And so uh, I found that I didn't have any data of patients with epilepsy or any really tools to process it. But then uh, I found that there were lots of brain image analysis tools that were freely released by institutions like at Harvard or at Oxford. And they were very generously kind of tutored me and guided me, like, how do I learn how to code? How do I think about all this stuff? And I also uh, struck up collaborations with other institutions institutions at NYU and University of Texas Houston who shared their patient data with me. And so that was really my first experience. 
Oh, so you came to open science from not from frustration angle, but from a sort of beneficiary angle. Um, that's kind of unusual. Yeah. Yeah, usually when we talk really? to people, they usually people come from more from the frustration angle. Like they, they were looking for some data or um, some reagents or something and people were not sharing. And they were like, okay, something has to happen. So it's uh, it's cool. It's, uh, yeah, it's nice to have meet someone who's who's benefited already from open science. That's a good story. That's good. <laughs> Definitely, yeah. So my my dissertation would not have been possible without people sharing with me. And one of the things that really impressed me, um, not also with the institution that shared data, because they, they were very wonderful. And, you know, we had agreements that we would all, you know, benefit from those publications, which we were all on. Um, but the people who produce the software platforms, like FreeSurfer and FSL were the ones I used in particular, based out of uh, Harvard and Oxford, respectively. And they spent... I mean, for me, it felt like hours and hours <laughs> trying to help me learn how to use the tools. And they're always very uh, kind with my pr pretty stupid questions. And um, so that was really my first exposure uh, to open science. And so, uh, I mean, you know, I had heard around the same time that there are people who are very frustrated and promote open science as a way to get something that they otherwise don't have. But that really wasn't my first experience at all. In fact, I had a very good and very optimistic view. But so that's that's interesting because despite that, one of the reasons we're talking to you today is that um, you wrote an article about um, maybe I think you used the phrase like the dark side of open science. So um, right. could you just explain briefly, like um, the, the the Jack Gallant um, controversy? Sure, of course. Yeah. So during during grad school, you know, I was I was very excited about. You know, everyone we were able to share, and I mean that's how I began the article. That was my my first experience. Mm, sure. And then at the same time, I had heard about people uh, who had been very frustrated uh, by certain individuals who had tried to essentially steal other people's data in the name of open science, and had tried to use these principles of open science to uh, you know get something that they wouldn't otherwise have. And so that was a very different interaction with, you know, this idea or this group that I had before, but I didn't really think much about it because I was doing what I wanted to do. All these tools were available to me. And then so where uh, Jack Gallant's, uh, I guess, case study, we could call it, comes into play, which is this last year. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I, would you like me just to go through briefly the the, the scenario here? Yeah, sure. So um, Jack, Jack Gallant, I feel like, if anybody does neuroscience research, they'll, they'll know Jack Gallant's name. And I actually looked up for this podcast whether it said Gallant or Gallant or Gallant. <laughs> <laughs> I have him in a YouTube video. I have him in a YouTube video saying that uh, uh, he, he doesn't care. So I'm going to call him Jack Gallant. Okay. Uh, so anyway, so he's a, he's a cognitive neuroscientist at Berkeley, and you know, for the last decade or two, he's just had this series of very influential papers. Uh, often using uh, functional MRI. Mm -hmm. And so uh, in 2016, he published this paper about how uh, our brain is changed by different words, essentially, in the MOTH podcast. So they had people listen to the MOTH, MOTH podcast and MRI scanner. Then they developed these really cool methods to kind of parse out where specific words or groups of words 
are represented in the brain. They created this just beautiful, you know, both like scientifically and visually beautiful map of the brain of where the different synaptic groups are in the brain. So before then, I mean, he was just kind of on a roll with these methods. Before then, he had shown that he could kind of read minds as the way the, the press caught up, uh, picked up the story where, you know, he could reproduce pictures or videos that people were watching just based on their brain activity. Wow. And so these were very big projects and very well-known projects. I mean, he had a lot of notoriety from these. And um, uh, so around, I guess it was on the 4th of July this last year, um, Jack was on Twitter and he was a very common uh, tweeter, I should say. Mm -hmm. um, so he was very active in the, the Twitter community. And so he often tweeted about open science. I mean, he had recently released a, a data set and tool set a few weeks before the fourth, um, you know, kind of showing how involved he was in open science. And um, he made the comment that, you know, giving away free code is pointless if it only works within expensive software programs like MATLAB, which is what most people use. Mm -hmm. And so uh, as a result of this, there was this Twitter conversation. Um, someone said, nice advice, what about data? And then evidently this person in their lab had requested access to Gallant's uh, 2016 Nature paper. And, you know, obviously I don't know exactly what the situation was, but this uh, Slab never got back to him until they started a big conversation about when someone ought to release their data mm -hmm. in the publication process. And uh, so Gallant defended his position. He said, we're still working on this. We have a lot of analyses that we're doing with this data that we collected. And uh, eventually this kind of spinned into a very large, multi-week, multiple, multiple thread conversation on Twitter. Uh, which, to my surprise, kind of ended with people making claims that Gallant should be barred from nature, from publishing in nature, mm -hmm. and also uh, he should have his funding revoked from certain grants. Mm -hmm. And so a couple of points that I thought were uh, fascinating here was, on the one hand, we had, you know, this debate between different stakeholders, right? So Gallant... Uh, He's worked to collect this data through grants. Him and his graduate students, postdocs, are developing tools based on this grant. And at the same time, he's published in a journal that uh, specifies that they would like their data code and protocols promptly, so the word they use and publicly available. There isn't a very clear definition mm -hmm. for when that happens. Mm -hmm. And so um, I think that was the real rub, that there was this you know, lack of clarity between uh, expectations for the lab and then expectations for the community, expectations for the journal. Mm -hmm. And so um, that was really the first time that I had seen uh, like open science, these principles of open science be used very explicitly to try to harm someone, uh, specifically mm -hmm. like Jack Gallant and they're making claims like this even went all the way back to nature's website where people posted uh, uh, portions of this Twitter debate, and um, uh, that, that's kind of the, the case study there. And so that really got me thinking. I was like, well, this is something that I'd heard could happen. You know, yeah. I hadn't really paid much attention to it before then, but I was 
glued to my Twitter feed <laughs> during this debate because, um, and also I was afraid to interact much. Um, and that was an emotion that I paid a lot of attention to because I could see the way the debate um, had turned from this principled conversation to uh, something else. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So, but did you? So you, you did have the feeling that really the people who were asking for the data was it was not really because okay, there's this data and I have some other complementary data and I want to analyze it, but I'm really people who were like looking for for freebies in a way, like not for for co collaboration for actually you know building our data, but to yeah, as you, as you said, steal it, right? I mean, how? Why? I, so I, I don't know what. So the, I don't know what the specific intentions were. It's hard for me to mm -hmm. speculate. I want some possible for me to speculate what was in someone's mind. Mm -hmm. But um, the way that it worked out on Twitter, mm -hmm. it didn't sound like, a, why don't we sit down and work together? Mm -hmm. It wasn't that sort of conversation. Yeah. 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 I mean, it doesn't sound like they were asking for a collaborative relationship. They were saying, give us your data so I can go and do what I want to do, which is... If you didn't get the funding, I can kind of see why there'd be a... Well, I guess it's kind of interesting because it's really, uh, you know, um, who owns the data? I guess yeah. that's the, you know, that's the, the okay. underlying, you know, like, does this data belong to a specific person, actually? You know, I mean, you know what I mean? Well, and so th that, that really is the question, I think. And so um, I think that this is a very nuanced and very complex topic. And in the end, like, Questions like data ownership do have actual legal answers. Mm. And so who ought, who ought to own data is a very different question from who owns data. Yeah. And so, you know, I did some research because I wanted to know. This was something that, you know, I, I'd like to think of myself as a scientist. And I think this is an important topic for our community. And so I wanted to understand more about who actually owns data. And then I learned that at least when you submit grants to the NIH, the National Institutes of Health here in the U.S., you know, the researchers, so like if I were to submit a grant, I would specify a data management plan. Mm -hmm. And in that data management plan, I would specify what I would do with this data or the products of that data, like tools, software programs, what have you, um, if I were to create them, if I were funded. And so the NIH reviews that grant. They decide whether they want to fund it or not. And then if funded, there's a contract between my institution and the NIH that gives ownership of that data and those tools to my institution. Mm -hmm. yeah. So my institution owns that data. And mm -hmm. so, uh, you know, the, the question of who does own data is solved there. I mean, the question of who ought to own that data, that's mm -hmm. something different. Mm -hmm. And so what I thought was interesting in this, this case study here of, of uh, Jack Gallant's lab was um, the conversation wasn't on who owns the data, but who should have access to the data. Mm -hmm. And so uh, who has access to the data is specified by who owns it. Right? <laughs> and so there's an, this additional layer. Yeah. Well, I, I, yeah, I guess there's also a layer of, you know, of who's funding the data, because I know at least for the European, uh, European funded projects, um, funded directly by the European uh, Commission, um, there is a uh, sort of, I mean, right now it's in pilot stage, but there's opt-in open data um, pilot and open access is definitely required and open data will be required. So basically you don't get money if you don't, do, if you don't specify in your data management plan that you're going to have open data basically right 
So uh, this is kind of a, another interesting layer. I don't know. Do you know how the, how does it work for the NIH? Is it the same principle? Like does NIH require a certain open science um, policies to be implemented or is it something up to researchers? So I think the way the NIH is approaching this is as a very complex and nuanced topic. And I think they're evaluating it now on a project by project basis. Mm -hmm. And so one of the ways that all grants are evaluated is individually. Mm -hmm. So the data management plan uh, is created by the principal investigators and, you know, the collaborators, whoever's on the grant. And so everyone vets that, and then they submit it to NIH. And then I think the NIH is definitely a proponent of open data. I mean, there are many platforms that the NIH has created and maintains at great cost to facilitate open science. Sure. And um, but I think in the end that every grant is proposed by a research group and then is evaluated and reviewed by the NIH, and they come to an agreement on how that should go for it. And that's interesting. Yeah. It's not, not a hard and fast rule. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm not. I'm not aware of a hard and fast rule like that. I mean, there might be one that exists, but I'm not aware of one. Yeah, I mean, I think I the principle. Yeah, I mean, I think the principle the European Commission is following is that the money that they use to fund projects comes from taxpayer money. It's it's you know everyone pays in and then they pay out to what research they deem to be most socially beneficial and part of that is that the, the data then belongs to the scientific community um, because it, it's uh, the aim is to kind of you know um, science driven for society and so forth you know and, and and that's kind of very big with the European Commission so I guess they'd be kind of being hypocritical if they didn't make the the try and make the data open um but i mean it's interesting because you mentioned the european commission kind of doing this as a top-down policy but one of the things that um you mentioned when you were giving your summary of the the gallant um issue was that people were appealing to nature saying that he should be you know retracted or whatever and they were looking at nature as a journal as an arbiter of, of, of open science which strikes me as very odd um yeah. <laughs> it's, i agree i agree <laughs> yeah um, so um, I mean, do you think do you think who who if anyone should be the arbiter of open science or should there not be such a thing anyway uh well i definitely think that there should be arbiters i mean obviously people come to science for whatever personal motivation they may have but I like the way that the European Union is doing it, this top-down approach, because all of these conversations about ownership and who has rights to what is something that I think is best addressed at the onset of a study, mm. not later in the publication process, after all the data has been collected, after all this work has been done. And that's the contract was already set, at least the way I've understood in the United States, the contract was already set months, if not years before the submission of a manuscript. Mm. And so getting that agreement in writing and having a very clear understanding, uh, not only for the community, but also for the participants in a specific study is very helpful. Mm. Otherwise we might have uh, 
not as subtle, not as nuanced conversations on Twitter about this, which may not be productive of you know, creating solutions as we might hope. Yeah, I well. mean, I think, yeah, I mean, I think I'm not, I'm not a fan of journals being arbiters, but even that is better than the Twitter mob being arbiters <laughs> of open science because that's right. horrible, right? Right, and so I, I understand. So I, I feel like I have a lot of empathy for the journals, and so after this article came out, I had a very and well, I still have an ongoing conversation with nature. And so journals, you know, began as ways for scientists to report and maybe publicize, if that's the word, uh, share the results of their research with the community so as to advance knowledge. And mm -hmm. so journals provide a good and service that is very valuable to the community. And as part of this value that they're providing, you know, they take their responsibility very seriously to vet and ensure that the results of their studies are valid. Otherwise, you know, you're misleading an entire community, an entire field, you know, and it's just not, just not good business. <laughs> no. And so, um, and so this, this idea of allowing their content to be freely available to scientists is something that they take very seriously. Um, I was very uh, pleased to interact with nature. And so they shared with me this program that they have uh, called Shared It, which allows researchers to share subscription content easily and legally mm -hmm. um, within this platform. And so that allows them to continue their business model, which is essential to their existence as a journal. And it also allows them to share their content and promote science in a way that I hadn't you know, fully appreciated when I wrote this article. However, when it comes to the question of data, I think that's something different. And so who owns data is an answerable question. Mm -hmm. And it's a question that is based in contract and it's not based necessarily in value after mm -hmm. the fact of the contract. Mm -hmm. And so um, that's where I think the, the conversation is moving now. Like can or should journals require data to be released? I mean, it makes a lot of sense for me to, uh, for a journal, especially a journal with a very like prestigious brand like Nature or Science or, you know, New England Journal, to ask that data sets be uh, reproduced or, you know, like certain analyses be reproduced. That way they can verify the content that they're publishing, that they're essentially branding, right? Mm -hmm. um, but that's very different from requiring public access yeah. to data sets. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think that was one of the things I was, I was thinking of asking you because that share bit thing that you were saying about and what you're suggesting is peer-to-peer is -peer access, which is obviously really important. But, I mean, to take open science to its full principles, then you need public access as well. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I don't know. Uh, that's, that's quite a different kind of kettle of fish, I think is the right colloquialism. Yeah. Well, I guess this is like a whole, um, well, it's a different level of conversation anyways, yes. because it's, uh, yeah, who owns the data? I mean, I I totally uh, agree with you. This is the very crucial question here at the like at heart of this um, whole, uh, yeah, story, <laughs> basically, issue. Um, but yeah, who owns the data? Is it uh, me as a taxpayer or is it the researchers? Is it even the institutes to make, you know, maybe 
commercialize some of it and uh, I don't know it's kind of interesting question because you know the, um, when we talk about open site um, open access sorry um, you know journals uh, requiring uh, requiring um, subscription to read them so basically as a, as a researcher you pay to read you pay to, to publish <laughs> you uh, or pay basically your, your own free time for peer reviewing and so it's like you know you just pay basically so you could also say with data it's sort of the same thing for the you know for the for the community or for yeah for the for the world, for the taxpayer as well. It's basically you just pay, you never get. <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah. it's interesting. Um, when, when, so you said you have like, you have some really uh, interesting projects going on. Um, I wonder, would you now um, release your data sets like from your own projects? Yeah, so one of the things I really like about Todd Constable's lab and also John Crystal, who's the chair of the Department of Psychiatry, his leadership, is they're very invested in this idea of collaborative science. And so all of the brain imaging scans that we're collecting, we're organizing them in what's called BIDS format. Um, mm -hmm. Crap, I can't remember what BIDS stands for right now. But it's, it's a standardized way of organizing, you know, the structural images, the functional images, and also the behavioral data that allows someone who didn't collect the data set to understand kind of the overall organization which is something that I, I value very highly because as a, as a graduate student, I had access to people's data and I was very happy to, but at the same time, uh, it took me a long time to figure out how everything was organized and was everything here. Mm. So having a very standardized way of being able to share that data is important. And um, a lot of the tools that I'm using right now in uh, Todd Constable's lab have already been publicly released onto Nitric, which is the NIH's uh, Site for uh, releasing tools. Yeah. And so um, the projects that we're involved in right now, we have every intention of releasing the data. And so um, another question that we thought about, though, and this is something that I touch on in my essay, is um, I'm I'm conducting what I could consider clinical research. What well, is clinical research? I'm inviting patients in and we're trying to develop tools to help us better understand different types of mental illnesses with the idea of being able to better diagnose and treat those patients far down the road, right? So we have no uh, uh, delusions that we're going to crack a mental illness in, by 2020 or whatever, but we hope that our efforts will you know, lead us towards that end. And so my dissertation work, uh, one of the lessons I learned from that was publishing papers doesn't always lead to a clinically useful tool. Mm. And so the goal of my dissertation was to develop a biomarker that would help neurologists, neurosurgeons better decide which hemisphere seizures originated from, which is a, a very practical clinical problem, especially in medial temporal lobe epilepsy. Because you usually go in and you cut out one of the hippocampi as a treatment and you mm -hmm. can only cut one of them out. So you have to figure out which side is coming from because <laughs> yeah, uh, right. you got to know. And so uh, that was the goal there. And we were able to produce preliminary data and showing that you could lateralize or figure out which hemisphere that seizure came from. But just the publication of that didn't mean that it was a clinically useful tool, right? So in order to bring that into the clinic, we would have had to have done a very large scale clinical trial, right? We would have had to have validated mm -hmm. this tool, which would have required a great deal of funding. Mm -hmm. In order to create a tool, we would have had to have gotten capital, like money from investors. Mm -hmm. 
in order to create something that would be practical to use mm. in a clinic. I mean, because you're not going to have graduate students like myself processing real patient data in real time. Mm. And then you need to have something very precise, very user-friendly, all things that require investment. And so this transition from interesting and very impactful science into clinically useful tools that can then make a difference in the world, um, that requires a level of uh, proprietary information that I'm still trying to understand myself. And so where is the transition from public data sets mm-hmm. into uh, proprietary like ideas and technologies that can then be useful products supported by businesses? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, since we're on a podcast, let me meta cite another podcast that I thought was really interesting. <laughs> so there's a, <laughs> So the nature uh, produces this biotechnology podcast, hmm. and um, one of the recent interviews was I'm gonna I'm gonna say it wrong, but Feng Feng Zhang at MIT who helped mm-hmm. create CRISPR. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so the the CRISPR technology was released, right? But Feng has since started multiple businesses that have applied aspects of CRISPR technology to then create very useful products that are available to people. And the only way to get those products out there into the world in a you know usable format was the creation of those businesses. And one of the aspects that I, maybe one of the subtleties that I think get, gets lost sometimes in the open science conversation is this idea that to translate science into useful products that can affect people, affect patients, businesses can often be very beneficial in that sense. Yeah, and that requires investment. Yeah, on the other hand, I mean, that does not does not contradict releasing um, the data. I mean, because sure, uh, it still takes so much to you know to as you just said, you know, to uh, to make this data usable for like actual application. Uh, it takes more than just data; just having the data, you still have to come up with clever right. solutions how to actually you know convert it into technology that can be used or a product that can be sold. I mean, that's what Chang was doing, uh, or he's still doing. I mean, he's just uh, ingenious in creating all these right. new CRISPR applications, which are, you know, but I mean, of course, first to find CRISPR, you know, in this uh, weird bacteria and realize this, the immune system uh, of bacteria and how it works. I mean, this, um, yeah, if you would protect this data, um, then I guess there wouldn't be any development from Chang either, you know, there wouldn't be any applications. So, right. so um, right. yeah. But, but to be fair, I mean, it is, it is a, sorry, um, it is a concern that seems to reoccur. Like, I mean, we, we had um, some colleagues from Tech Transfer come to us and say, you can't tell researchers to release all their data because then they might not be able to commercialize. Mm. Um, so I, I, whether it's real or perceived, this seems to be something that comes up mm-hmm. um, a lot with, with researchers, mm. that, that um, giving away their data is going to in some way lose them. Yeah. I guess we have to do a result on IP rights and uh, we, 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 it's, commercialization. It's, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would love to hear that. So, so like I, said, I, I don't know what the solution is, and I'm I'm very much learning right now. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm very junior in my career, and I'm hopefully I'm taking the stance that I'm I'm asking questions and trying to you know figure out what's going on. And I think it's a very subtle conversation. I don't think that all data sets could become useful products. 
And at the same time, I'm inclined to disagree that all data should be publicly released mm -hmm. because if that data was released, then maybe people couldn't go through that tech transfer process you're talking about. And mm -hmm. I, I don't know enough. I mean, obviously, I'm not like a, a patent attorney or an IP person, no. but um, I know that there are a lot of people who have a lot of, you know, very specific skill sets that would know that. But I wonder, like, because um, you was just telling um, um, about um, uh, the setting you're at, that your institution, um, um, the labs you uh, you work in, that you have a very collaborative approach to science. And so I just wonder, when you release the data, um, do you control it as well? I mean, do you do you keep the control over the data, or is it that people have to ask you to use it, or is it really out there and anybody can use without asking? So the way the way I've understood how Nitric works is that mm -hmm. people have to have login credentials to access mm -hmm. what's on Nitric is that NIH site. People have to have credentials to log on to that. Mm -hmm. And so there's one level of control, which I, I suppose you could argue isn't technically public access because it's not just, mm -hmm. I don't know, on someone's web page. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, so that's how we're intending on releasing this data. Um, I know, like, for instance, my dissertation project, that would have been more of a peer-to-peer -peer model, mm -hmm. wherein I approached specific groups that I knew had data sets because I'd kind of sleuthed around their publication history. And so I saw these data sets that they'd already published on, and I'd asked them if they would be willing or interested to collaborate. And also, uh, another thing that I think is very important and very persuasive for that peer-to-peer -peer model is I presented them a specific hypothesis that I wanted to test. Mm -hmm. right? And so when we entered into a collaborative agreement, we had a very specific direction that we were going. Mm -hmm. And everyone understood at the onset of our collaboration what what the study would be, what the timeline would be, what everyone would be getting, like who would be where on a paper, mm -hmm. for example. Yeah. And so I, I think that was very helpful in that collaboration. Yeah. Because there are those models for, um, for like um, biobanks, for example, that um, there are, you know, well, samples stored and also data available, but only you have to submit a project basically, and then you have to fulfill certain requirements. And the argument being that um, that this data is not, it's actually patient data, so it's sensitive data anyways, and just shouldn't be used without a, yeah, well, special context, well, approved context, um, so to say. So, so I'm not familiar with how uh, Institutional Review Board or IRB, IRBs work in the European Union. Mm -hmm. but like, for example, my IRB that allowed me to collect this patient data, I had to explicitly ask participants in my study whether they were okay with me publicly releasing mm -hmm. anonymized yes. data sets. Mm -hmm. And so I could imagine a situation where a more conservative IRB would require more of a peer-to-peer -peer model or, you know, to in order to protect data sets in some way. Um, I'm just thinking out loud here, but I, I, I could I can imagine that. Mm. Kind of well, it's quite interesting. I mean, I used to work on ethics and data governance, and um, what, there's wildly different ethics standards across the European Union <laughs> for a start. So what you can apply to do differs. Um, but then in, you know, the biobanks and, the, and the, uh, these places where you can store your data, there's wildly different um, kind of admittance criteria. So some of them you need to have a letter from your institution and a project and everything. And some of them you just need to tick a box. It says, I'm not going to do anything terrible. 
Um, so right. it's it's not. I mean, it's a good one. It, it really is the wild west out there in terms of, of data sharing and governance uh, in some ways. I mean, there are people trying to trying to do stuff to kind of pull this together. And then you know, if you're looking at sharing, say, with China um, versus America versus you know Kenya versus Italy, you're you're just yeah, just explode. So um, it's no wonder that you know researchers are confused. Um, mm-hmm. I'm confused, and I like work on this stuff. So. <laughs> hey. but, well, but thank you very much for your article, uh, your essay, um, because I, I think it's super useful to have uh, to spark this kind of discussions. You know, I mean, I, I, not everybody's on Twitter. Um, Strangely, I mean, I know it happens, but <laughs> there are some people who are not on Twitter that got the conversation basically. But um, I think it's really important to, um, to to think about data as a commodity and yeah. ownership and sharing, and it's 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 quite a new topic, I guess, because we just have so much data to share now. Yeah, in the digital age, we can share it instantly. Yeah. Should we? You know, yeah. So. Right. yeah, and I mean, I guess the 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 um, the only other thing I, I, I wanted to ask you is kind of a, maybe a final question is um, what I mean, given you've seen both sides of open science or the uses that open science can be put to. I mean, what is your kind of final at the moment anyway? What is your feeling on whether open science is a positive or a negative or, or um, yeah, kind of your take home message, if you like? <laughs> my take-home message. So I am very interested in maybe I could say it like this. So I think that together we are almost unquestionably more capable of producing something interesting than we are by ourselves. Mm-hmm. I think uh, the whole idea of open science is better based in this kind of a posture of humility that these problems are extremely complex. And the ways that we are moving in terms of data analyses and project designs, I think it's much too complex for any one person to figure out by themselves, or at least it is for me to figure out. I mean, the different levels of analyses and different types of data that are required to demonstrate anything uh, requires a collaborative effort. And so I think open science and having that posture of collaboration is very much a positive thing. I think also that. Uh, people have very different views for how that can be realized. And it reminds me of this uh, British philosopher, Isaiah Berlin, who argued, uh, he was in the 20th century, um, that any disagreement boils down to differences in these fundamental, like foundational principles someone has, like the outlooks they take on the universe, which I'm a neuroscientist, so I think it goes to your brain. And so uh, people with different brains have different perspectives on how things should be carried out and I think we should be respectful for of how those different people think perhaps the top-down approach would be the most effective way and in fact I think in terms of having more clarity and more precision in what our policies are as individual groups that would be helpful but I don't know uh, certainly not this point in my career what the best solution would be okay well then let's keep the conversation going yeah yeah Yeah, this is very cool yeah yeah thank you very much well thank you great to talk to you and um yeah really interesting uh talking points so thank you um daniel i appreciate it
so I mean, in fact, Daniel raised some really interesting, interesting points there. Oh, definitely. I mean, we've been talking about it all the time, right? This data commodity, um, mm. data as commodity. Um, so it's still very unsolved issue. Actually, really, I feel like we need to find out more about it. We really have to talk to some IP specialists. Yes, yes. So um, people out there, it's coming. It's <laughs> because coming. Because we really interested yeah. ourselves as well. Um, but in yeah. the end, I found this question really fascinating. Who owns data? Because yeah. it's really, it's so different. And you know what? I'm not really personally, I'm not really comfortable with institution owning data somehow no but that i mean that is quite common i was told as a phd student that everything i did while i was a phd student at the university i was at uh they owned um no i, I get that like but it's like okay so it's not the researcher it's not the society it's an institution mm -hmm. that's kind of interesting i mean you could yeah. argue that institution is a society right because yeah. it's publicly funded yeah, yeah, but I mean, institutions don't necessarily work for the public good. They often work for their own good, their own self-promotion. So while they are funded by society, they may not be, you know, geared mm. towards helping. Um, I mean, there's a case to be made that the data belongs to the funders, mm. since they paid for it. Yeah. But then you could say, take that back a step, where do the funders get the money from? The taxpayers. Mm. So don't, yeah. doesn't the data belong to the taxpayers? But then you get into all the ethics issues of just releasing data out into the, the wild, as it were. Gosh, we're gonna next next thing we're gonna be accused to be data communists. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, apparently that was one of the analogies that that um, Daniel had been told mm. communism that open science was communism. So mm. it was nice in theory, but unworkable in practice. <laughs> well. You could also argue like whether the communism that was practiced in the countries mm. where it was practiced was really communism. Well, but yeah, that. then we're... Well, can we do a history episode? Because <laughs> my time to shine is here. <laughs> well, okay. <laughs> maybe, maybe maybe for a, a summer special. Um, okay, so yeah. Um, so this question of ownership is really, really difficult. And I don't think we're actually any closer to answering it, but it's important to have the conversation. Yeah, that's the take-home message. Yeah, that's definitely a take-home message. And also, don't believe anyone who tells you either extreme. So yeah. people who say every piece of data you ever produce has to be pu publicly available on the internet or stick it on a hard drive in a safe and bury it in your garden. Neither of those things are, you know, realistic or viable. There is lots of other options. Oh, the, 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 the last option is definitely not viable. One of the PhD students in, in one of the labs I worked in, he was very concerned about data security. So he um, he copied all his data on, on the hard drive, uh, external. Uh, he made CD copies. Uh, that was back in times where there were CDs. Um, then he actually did bury the CDs in his garden, well, in his parents' garden, uh, in the southern part of Germany where he came from. And um, at some point, um, he needed the data for some reason, and could not could not find it on the, his normal hard drive. So he went for the hard drive, the external one. Um, it was scrambled somehow, so it was broken, so he couldn't. But haha, he did bury the CDs, right? So he still has those. Well, unfortunately, he didn't know where he buried them anymore. <laughs> so basically, this data was lost. 
Oh, I'm never recovered. <laughs> that's well. That's a lesson. I don't know what that lesson is apart from don't be crazy. But well, well, if he would have shared his data with someone, he would still or have it. Just had a map, like with <laughs> yeah. X marks the spot. If maybe if he just shared his data with his parents. <laughs> And the metadata, the data about the data, right? Where it is. This is why metadata is important, people. Just That's saying. That's the lesson learned. That's the lesson learned. And that concludes our episode on data, data sharing. sharing. Data sharing, yes. So um, please join us again next week, every Thursday from wherever you get your podcast from. As always, uh, the music is um, recorded by Fabio de Miguel. The sound mixing is done by, done by Paolo Oliveira. And the podcast is brought to you by the Orion Open Science Project, which is funded by the European Union. And we're broadcasting from Max Elbrook Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin, Germany. Yes. See you next week. See you next week. Bye now. Bye.